You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rob St. Mary. Heroin will be the death of me. Also with us this week is our old friend, Skiz Sizzik. Cluck, cluck, cluck. Delicious. This week we're looking at the film Liquid Sky. Directed in 1982 by Slava Sukerman, the film tells the tale of Margaret, a model who lives with her lover, Adrian. We also follow a cavalcade of other characters, such as Johan, a scientist who has discovered a flying saucer that rests above Margaret and Adrian's apartment. We also have Jimmy, a male model who is a rival of Margaret's. The film is really kind of steeped in sex, drugs, and new wave music. So, Skiz, as our guest, when was the first time you saw Liquid Sky, and what did you think? It was 1983. I was a senior in high school. came home from school, and I was looking in the newspaper, and uh, there was this tiny little ad, smaller than a business card, for a movie called Liquid Sky. I still remember the design. It was it was three flying saucers of different sizes and three images of, of the character Jimmy in three different sizes. And that ad at that you know small size, Jimmy looked like David Bowie. And the Liquid Sky logo looked very new wave. And if there were two things that my mind was completely occupied with at that time, it was David Bowie and new wave music and punk music. So I was really curious just based on this tiny little ad. And I asked my one friend who had a car – if he wanted to go see this movie and he's like, I don't know, what's it about? I was like, I have no idea, but look at this ad. And he was like, let's go. So we went and our minds were blown. Like it was unlike anything we'd ever seen before. We went to school the next day, told all our friends that night. We went back and saw it again with a few more people. Next day, everybody went to school, told their friends. By the end of the week, we'd seen it probably four times, and we went from two people to like 20 people probably that that went to this tiny little theater on the other side of town and, and watched this movie. The, the final night we saw it, 
one of my friends was snuck a camera in. He was taking stills of the screen. I snuck a boombox in and was recording the soundtrack. <laughs> you know, we just fell in love with this movie over the course of that week. And yeah, it, it, uh, I, I've always said it's one of the, one of the first films that showed me that filmmaking could be an art form as much as entertainment. You told two friends. And they told two friends. And so on, and so on, and so on. I had heard of it, but for some reason I think I was getting it confused with something like Heavy Traffic, because I thought originally it was some sort of animated film. <laughs> I don't know why. And um, I hadn't seen it until uh, I watched it for the show. So for me, I'm... I think it's interesting. It's definitely a time capsule of New York in that era and New Wave better than anything I've ever seen. I mean, if you want to go back and sort of look at what that design was like and certain ideas, I mean, it's all there. But um, I have some issues with sort of it being a bit slow and the plot not really working all that much for me. But overall, I, I give it a big thumbs up for being extremely ostentatious. I'm tempted to think that it's actually a time capsule from a few years later. Like I think it was ahead of its time in 1982 when it when it first came out. Musically, I don't know that music like that was ever part of any scene. <laughs> I mean, I've never heard any any other commercial music that sounded like that besides the soundtrack album. I mean, the it kind of reminds me of uh, the, the music. Uh, an odd mix of things, but I'll agree with you in terms of it being kind of percussive and dissonant at times. And the only thing maybe I can liken it to would be maybe some of the experimental minimalists in New York at the time, you know, that were kind of working with electronics. But that would be about it. And that's not even close enough. I mean, the, the, the incidental in here, and I'm not talking about the songs, I'm just talking about the incidental music at, at times got a bit much for me, but it it's still a an interesting listen. Yeah, the soundtrack kind of makes Kraftwerk sound like dance pop. <laughs> it sounds like you could put Kraftwerk in a dentist's office, you know, it would be okay. I'm surprised that I haven't heard Kraftwerk at a dentist's office yet. I walked into Kroger's the other day and they're playing new wave music and it's like, really? I saw this one just a few months ago. I've been hearing about this movie for a long damn time and I don't know why I never picked it up. I think that I used to get it Kind of like you, Rob, I would get it mixed up with other films. I think I would get it mixed up with Dogs in Space, the Australian film. I can see where you're coming from thinking that this was an animated film because the box cover, very beautifully drawn poster image that they had. It's like a painting. And so I can see where you might think that this is an animated film because it very much gives that impression from the cover to it. But I was initially kind of bored with this film and i know skiz and i had talked about this a few months ago and he's like i don't know if this movie's going to hold up i don't know if people that haven't seen this film are going to like it when they see it i don't know and at first i was like yeah this really isn't doing it for me but then i went and i read the book that was written by ann carlisle the um lady that plays margaret and jimmy in this and i am looking forward to talking about that in the second half of the show but for now, let's talk a little bit more about the film proper, and we should talk about that kind of double role, because that's one of the things that really struck me pretty early in the film, was seeing this one actress who plays two roles. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I'm still not sure. I mean, I know how you would do something like that, but I'm not sure how they did it, because it looks as if she had to get a haircut in order to play Jimmy. 
unless they had a really good hair person, uh, you know, you would think that, you know, when they're shooting one scene while she plays the Margaret part and then she changes clothes and she plays the Jimmy part. But if she really had to undergo this transformation, uh, you know, maybe they just did a great job and I'm totally fooled. The doubling looked better in this film in 1982 than films that I've seen within the last few years. Uh, I, I always think, and this is one that is probably just a few years newer than Liquid Sky, that shitty Lily Tomlin Bette Midler film. Do you remember that? Yeah. From Touchstone Pictures, Bette Midler and Lily Tomlin are about to meet Bette Midler and Lily Tomlin. The two sets of mismatched twins in one outrageous comedy. Two of everybody in there. Big Business, rated PG, starts tomorrow at a theater near you. Check newspaper for showtime. That had some of the worst doubling ever. <laughs> I thought you were going to say multiplicity with Michael Keaton. Oh, oh. Uh, <laughs> I hated or, that movie. I or, hated it. I thought you were going to reference, wasn't there a Jackie Chan one where it was pretty bad, like he walks through himself at one oh. point because the effect is really bad? Or what was the other one? Um, the, the, the Van Damme films where he plays twins. There's twin dragons and um, – uh, Double Impact from JCVD. Yeah, the, he actually, I wrote a whole piece once about him doubling himself because he was in Replicant where he plays you know, the same person. And there's uh, another one where it's his twin brother gets killed, but yet the one guy grew up in Hong Kong and the other one grew up in Russia, but yet they both have the same Belgian accent, but whatever. It's in the DNA. But yeah. Accents are in the DNA. <laughs> I really was astounded by how good this looked. I could see, like, at times I'm like, okay, they're not necessarily showing the full profile, so that's probably a body double. But it was, like, really amazing performance art as far as what this actress was doing with herself and with these characters and being able to kind of pull off this transformation. And really, you know, kudos to her and kudos to the filmmaker because I – was really just into what was going on as far as that went. And I think performance art is really a good word for a lot of this film. Kind of start off with, uh, well, we start off with the spaceship, which is coming into New York City. And I love that this spaceship is not this kind of day the earth stood still huge thing, though when you first see it, you don't necessarily know how big it is, but quickly you find out that this thing is only about the size of like a hubcap and it looks great though i mean the effects in this again 1982 look terrific and i love that the alien is just sort of this like colorful bubble looking thing <laughs> you know with, with maybe a couple veins in it or something first I, couple times i saw it i'm not sure i understood that that was the alien or what was going on but but if, over the years i don't know that's how i interpret it now see i didn't think it was the alien i thought it was the effect that they were having on people so i was I, I was really confused when i read synopsis that talked about aliens because i'm like i don't see anything all i see is this ship and then you see the ship at the end and i'm like what alien when i like the pov shots kind of like that one i did get that we were kind of seeing things through the alien's eye when you would get this like solarization effect going on that I got, especially because it seemed to happen when Margaret was being uh, abused, and she does become abused quite often. We really focus on Margaret. Margaret is really kind of the heart of this film, and I like the way that we kind of intercut her with Adrian. Adrian is 
played by uh, Paula E. Shepard. Have either of you guys, I think I referenced this movie last week, have either of you guys seen Alice, Sweet Alice? It's been a long time. Yeah, a long time. It is a really effective little horror film. It's known now for being one of the first films that Brooke Shields was in. It was directed by Alfred Soule, who only did like four movies altogether. And now he's actually still working. He's doing the production design on Castle, the uh, ABC TV show with Nathan Fillion. Paula E. Shepard is this little girl who may or may not be a serial killer and she is so fucking creepy in this movie. It is terrific. And it's only a, like a few years between that and this. She kind of grew up quick, I guess. And she is very effective as this like just tough little lady who's always got this scowl on her face and this horrible, horrible headband. That headband just bothered me throughout the entire movie. <laughs> Yeah, it's like she wanted to be in Loverboy or something. And it's like she just kind of wants to prove that her hairline is acne-free or something. I was like, what is this thing? Why is that kind of highlighting there? It was part of that crazy new wave fashion show. Well, I, she, oh. she wasn't in the fashion show, but I'm, I'm referring to the whole movie, basically. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up Bowie because I couldn't help but think of the influence of David Bowie as I was watching this. And then the other one was the lead, Margaret, at times kind of looked like a stand-in for Amy Mann during the Till Tuesday era. Oh, I can totally see that when she's talking to the professor um, yeah. later on in the film. Yeah, that haircut. Yeah. Yeah, her hair plays a quite a prominent role in the film, as does kind of the um, – the way that she perceives herself and the way that she's perceived by others, it feels to me like she's kind of really trying to get to know herself. And I'm not sure if Adrian is kind of a facet of that as far as like this bisexuality that she has. And there is a lot of nice discussion about bisexuality through the film, which I, I thought, again, was pretty groundbreaking for an uh, you know, 1982 film. I don't think even today people talk about bisexuality that much. Well, not only that, but there's a a line in there where... Are you her girlfriend? What difference does it make? Just curious. You like girls better than boys? I'm always curious about people who have to make those kind of sexual definitions. What do you mean? Homosexual, heterosexual, bisexual. Whether or not I like someone doesn't depend on what kind of genitals they have. As long as I find them attractive, don't you think? See, I, I, uh, I don't want to fuck a man, you know. I don't. Okay. It's your business. It, it reminded me of another film that features heroin because there's a similar line in a way in Train Spotting, where the Renton character has this voiceover about. Diane was right. The world is changing. Music is changing, drugs are changing, even men and women are changing. One thousand years from now, there'll be no guys and no girls, just wankers. Sounds great to me. And I just found that kind of interesting, the connection between, I don't know, maybe Irvin Welsh, uh, you know, like Liquid Sky and was an influence on train spotting. It's fairly early in the film, and we've got Adrian doing this uh rhythm box song slash performance again you know i'm thinking of this not necessarily as a song but much more of a performance art and she does say later on that the germans love her and love this kind of shit that she's doing what did you guys think of rhythm box uh i even kind of remember at the time that it was 
not exactly my favorite song. I mean, it's grown on me over the years. I just kept thinking of Hit Me With Your Rhythm Stick while she was talking about it. Me. Me and my... There's a lot of cross-cutting in this film, and this is really where we get to see it first, is her performance being cross-cut with Margaret, with what Margaret is up to. And I think I would have... I, I prefer it on the soundtrack where there's not the interruptions and you just get to hear the entire song as it is. It, it kind of sets the tone as far as how this movie is going to be cut because there's a lot of what's happening in Margaret's world and then cutting over to these other characters. And this kind of starts it off here with this particular scene. And then from then on out where we always kind of have what's happening with Margaret and then kind of the counterpoint. And we get introduced to these other characters. Like there's um, Vincent, who is this guy who is um, giving out cocaine uh, at the club this new wave club, which was pretty awesome, kind of looked like somebody's living room with like black crepe paper up or something. But people were digging it, man. People were really into that new wave music, from what I understand. They out there giving away that pussy for free, all to hear some bullshit music. Now, what the hell does that new wave music got that black music doesn't have? What you're saying about the uh, all the cross cutting that goes back to what I was saying about how this film made me think of movies as art as much as entertainment. This was the first time that I'd really paid attention to editing because I thought it was really interesting how this film could have like two or more, sometimes three or four different conversations going at the same time and you know, just jumping back and forth between each of them. And it seemed seamless the first time I watched it. After a while, I started paying more attention to it. But what I loved was that like each setting had its own little musical theme or different characters had their own little musical theme. And it was just so well done. There were just all these little subtle touches and, and it never dawned on me that you could do that. Like when the movie was over the first time I watched it, I think that I thought those were four different scenes, not realizing that they were four different scenes happening at, at the same time. And that was one of the things that I really liked about it. I mean, I, I said that I'm still, I, I think it's warming to me each time I've watched it. I've watched it three times now. And actually I think probably the last 40 minutes or half hour gets like, I can get more into that. It takes a while to get there, but that whole thing where Margaret's in a restaurant with the one girl and then Jimmy is at another restaurant with his sister. And then there's the professor, the German guy with someone else. And then I think there's one other conversation and they're all intercut. And I'm just like, this is someone who knows what they're doing. You know, because that could have failed miserably when you have that much stuff going on and expecting the audience to keep those different threads in their head. Yeah, that's actually his mom. She doesn't look that much older than him. It is uh, kind of complicated, too, because of the whole idea of Sylvia and Jimmy. And Jimmy is involved in this world. He's another fashion model along with Margaret, and they interact quite a few times. And 
so you have Jimmy in this world with Margaret, and then you have Sylvia being this relationship to Jimmy, and then we see Sylvia again with Johan, and we initially see Johan, he's this German scientist who is, is aware of the flying saucer that we saw at the very beginning of the film, and he's up at the top of the Empire State Building with all his shoes and glasses, and he's looking at the UFO and kind of tracking it and studying this thing, and you don't really necessarily know what he's up to at first, at least I didn't, and then eventually he interacts with Sylvia. So we kind of have this whole like round robin thing going on as far as who knows who. Before that, though, he interacts with Owen. Right. (laughs) Who's Margaret's ex. (laughs) Exactly. So it's like this whole like small, even though it's this millions of of stories, you know, in the naked city kind of thing, everybody seems to know each other. They're all just this kind of, you know, two degrees of separation from one another. I have to say Owen Probably the lesser performance in this film, especially his scene with Johan. I think that was one of the more clunky scenes in the film. What's so strange about death and punk circle? They kill each other by uh, shooting too much dope. Don't you remember, remember when we were at um, Cambridge? There was a war, I think, it was between the, uh, they were called uh, mods and rockers, and they, they went at each other with bicycle chains. I don't think your punks need help from the outside to kill themselves. I mean, it was needed so that Johan could uh, explain the aliens. And and I guess just to set up Owen's character. Owen later on, when he's with Margaret, no problem. I have no problem with his performance in that scene. Just with him and Johan, there was a little clunkiness there. And it's kind of neat because people speak like real people in this, and you can even hear them kind of flub lines at times, but I didn't care. I was really kind of invested in this, and I was just like, okay, that's how a real person speaks. I mean, as I'm sitting here talking to you guys, I constantly am repeating myself and stammering and stuttering, but that's how real people talk, so it kind of added this verisimilitude to his performance when they would kind of flub the lines a little bit. Without much fanfare, Margaret gets raped pretty early in this film. She gets raped by this Vincent guy, the guy who was allegedly handing out cocaine, but he has no cocaine to give to Margaret. Instead, he has some quaaludes that he forces into her mouth, beats her up, and rapes her. And this is one of several rapes that happens in this film, and I was really not prepared for just how rapey this movie was. I'm glad you said rapey, because I was going to use that word. <laughs> I'm sorry, Rob. I hope I didn't steal your rapey thunder. No, no, not <laughs> at all. It, um, it really has, at times, the not just the rapey stuff, but 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 sometimes it's it's hard for me to have fun watching this film. Um, it's hard for me to enjoy it because I feel like the, there's a distance with these characters. I don't feel emotionally involved with them. And when I'm not emotionally involved with them, the plot is kind of odd. So that makes it hard to follow. And, and that's why, like I said, the first time I saw it, I was just like, I, I don't know what I'm kind of looking at. The rape scenes definitely made me uncomfortable, especially because it seemed like the rapes weren't that big a deal to her. That just kind of shocked me. I, I was kind of glad to see that Ann Carlisle, who plays that character, co-wrote the script. Yeah, because I, I just had a feeling, oh, this is probably a male screenwriter writing about something he doesn't know about. I don't know what you know Ann Carlisle knows about rape, but uh, I was just glad that there definitely was a female perspective from the screenwriting point of uh, from the screenwriting. 
the two characters that I haven't talked about so far are Catherine and Paul, and I'm trying to remember how they fit into this film. Uh, Paul buys drugs from Adrian, and I think that's it. Okay. And then he comes back later and rapes Margaret. Right. And then she comes to the apartment the same time as Sylvia. She's looking for Paul, and Sylvia's looking for Johan. But other than that, I don't think uh, I don't think she connects to anybody. Really, I feel very bad for Margaret because she so she gets raped by Vincent. She has sex with Owen, and then he dies. And then Adrian kind of rapes his corpse a little bit uh, after beating him up and doing some freeform poetry kind of stuff to him, which it might be a fate worse than death sometimes. At least it wasn't slam poetry. So, <laughs> or was it? The first time it's a rape with Vincent. The second time. It's her idea. Right, right. Because when she has sex with Owen, Owen is her former professor, and he comes over and is – and really, a lot of it is him just trying to make her feel bad. And she had this relationship with him. He's this older man, and I think she might have realized that it was a little inappropriate or whatever and just didn't feel on the up and up. And he's just kind of lecturing to her. At least that's the impression that I kind of got was this and felt more like – he felt more like a father figure. So it was kind of weird when they started having sex, but then when they're having sex, this crystal shard kind of reminded me of like, you know, a piece of the fortress of solitude goes inside of his brain and kills him. And it's like, what the hell just happened? But you quickly kind of figure out, Oh, this has something to do with the alien. And it takes a little while for some of this stuff to kind of piece together. But as the movie goes on, you kind of realize that the alien, when Margaret is having sex with people or she's being raped, the alien is killing whoever is having sex with Margaret. As they kind of climax, they disappear or they die. I mean, the crystal, I think, only happens the one time. Uh, I thought there was two times, but I okay. don't remember. Of course, but later on in the film, they just disappear. Right. And, of course, Vincent doesn't die the first time because he rapes her on the steps where the alien can't see them. Right. She is definitely not having a good day when it comes to what's happening here. But it is interesting when people start dying when she is having sex with them. So, yeah, at first – they're leaving the bodies, and though Adrian tries to kind of dispose of Owen's body, and later on, though, they will disappear. And I think that's really, to me, like the the real heart of the film, and I, you guys feel free to completely disagree with me, the heart of the film for me is the fashion show, this kind of scene that comes out of nowhere because Margaret had forgotten that she agreed to allow people to come over and do this fashion shoot at their apartment. Oh, yeah, you mean the, the photo shoot. I, I thought you were talking about it in the club earlier, the fashion show. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, the photo shoot that goes on in, in their apartment. And uh, this is where a lot of stuff kind of finally congeals. And the reporter character, I think, is one of the more interesting ones, even though she's kind of like, you know, relegated to like a side character, but she's doing a lot of prying and getting information out of people and you get to see Anne Carlyle's childhood photos you know, as she's playing Margaret, which I found to be very fascinating. Yeah, I would say that things really start taking off a little earlier than that. It, it, once Owen dies, Adrian leaves to go buy a chicken or whatever and runs into Johan. While she's out, that's when Paul comes over and that's when 
Paul dies, and when he, when uh, Margaret says, you know, hey, you, I can't have all these bodies, and suddenly Paul's body disappears, that's the moment where it's like, oh, okay, now she gets what's going on, in a, in a way. And then from there on, it's kind of like she has this knowledge that she has, she's not sharing with anybody, but it, it suddenly puts her in this this position of power for the rest of the film. I love the interactions between Johan and Sylvia. You know, you mentioned Johan going out and he's trying to warn Adrian. And I love her just like assuming that he's a, a narc and <laughs> being really bitchy to him about stuff. Yeah. But yeah, back at Sylvia's apartment, Johan has kind of got his way into Sylvia's apartment because she has a really good view of the spaceship on the other side of the, you know, just across the way kind of thing, um, which is interesting that, you know, Jimmy's mom lives right across the way, you know, small world kind of thing. And Sylvia is this horny, horny lady constantly trying to get in Johan's pants. And Johan either purposefully or unknowingly is just rebuffing her completely because he is so focused on this UFO. I, I get the feeling he starts to warm up to her eventually, but then by that point he realizes he's got to, he's got to leave and head over there, which, you know, so sadly, well, I don't want to give away spoilers. Yeah. The film's only 32 years old, but yeah, we'll try to avoid the spoiler category, <laughs> I guess. The, the one thing that I liked in there, it's just, it's kind of a throw line, a throwaway piece of dialogue, but when they're first introduced, is he's like, you know, oh, you're German, and she's like, I'm a Jew. So there's this whole sort of like, are, are you sure that you would want to like be around me kind of thing? <laughs> I'm a right. Jew. It was just, it, I mean, it, you understand it in context of what she's trying to say, but I just thought it was kind of funny. Yeah. He is just so clueless so often, though. It's like he gets this perplexed look on his face, and it's like, I love listening to his voice, though. When he's speaking, he's got that big, deep voice, the German accent. It's not quite as um, you know endearing as a Werner Herzog, but I definitely I could listen to this guy for a long time. The photo shoot is where we get a lot of great stuff happening, a lot of the new wave fashion kind of coming into play, the makeup and everything. I love this kind of like kabuki style makeup that um, Aunt Carlisle, the Margaret character, wears a lot. And the other models are wearing this kind of makeup stuff, too. So I, I found this scene to be pretty interesting in the way that all the characters are kind of interacting. And it leads up to just this bizarro climax that I did not necessarily see coming. That um, one scene, this is another thing in terms of the visuals I really liked, is in that scene where she's got the black light and then she paints her face, so her face becomes uh, visible, and then she's giving like this monologue and she keeps adding to it with other colors. I was like, that's a really cool idea. I like the idea of having no face and then your face sort of appears as you manipulate it. I also like that scene because that's the first time in the movie, uh, with the exception of, of Paul and, and Catherine, that's the first time you see some relatively normal or not nor- conventional people, like not necessarily club people. Yeah, they're a little weird, but you know they're they're a little more realistic, and uh, that 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 kind of brought the film back to a reality that it hadn't had in, until that point. And I love that whole little exchange about Americans and who are Americans and what are Americans and how everybody is going around the room and saying where they're from. This whole idea, you know, like 
that is is a very interesting thing to do when you compare that against Johan this German guy who is an alien to the United States in a way, and then looking for aliens and just the way that people either fit in or they don't. And I think so much of this film is Margaret just feeling like she doesn't fit in. It just always feels like she's on the sidelines in some way, like kind of, as you were saying, Rob, the, the facelessness, you know, and not having the face, but she's working on it is kind of what I'm getting from this film. And I think that probably has a lot to do with the virtue that this isn't made by an American filmmaker. It was made by a guy who's, who's Russian who came here to make this film. So there really is sort of this oddness to it and this other, and this question of other, like you said, that kind of runs through there, whether it be, sexual other or outer space other or just you don't fit into the scene other you even have this disembodied face like right from the beginning of the film after you see that spaceship you see i can only assume it's a a cast of margaret's face i don't know if you guys agree or disagree with that but it's there's a very prominent use of this kind of face cast that runs throughout the film and it's kind of encircled with this halo of neon which i was also very cool now i will say that that's one problem i have with the film is whenever somebody dies and the alien steals the chemical from their brain that's similar to the heroin you know and it makes that big uh, technicolor nerf ball come at you that happens in the very beginning of the film with the alien looking at that face, which makes me think, did that alien just steal the chemical from Adrian's drugs? Because that's where she hides them. She hides them behind that face. In which case, all the drugs she's selling for the rest of the film, are they working? I don't know. If, you know, I'm sure there's an explanation, but that's when I finally really got a grip on this film. That was one of the things, one of the problems that I had with it. That and the impromptu round of Old MacDonald had a farm. Well, it all has to do with the cluck cluck. Yeah, but I mean, what a coincidence two people would start singing that at the same time out of nowhere. That's true. But of course, what a coincidence that Jimmy's mother lives right across the street from Margaret and etc. Jimmy and Margaret, what do you guys make of this whole weird seduction in reverse kind of scene? I mean, what the heck is going on here? That's where they finally both are sort of dropping the act but at the same time, starting another act. I don't know. I, I think it, the film really gets good when that scene finally comes around. I, I mean, the film gets a lot better. It really kicks in. I think that they, in a way, kind of maybe represent different aspects of each other. So maybe you can consider them like one whole character or one whole idea. And the idea of having one actress play both. I think it's interesting, sort of the uh, the battle of sex kind of thing where they're going back and forth on like, okay, well you do this or you do that, or you can't do this. There's no way you can do that. And they're kind of like, they're kind of like kids, like daring each other to do something. And I, I think it's interesting that she, she knows what she can do to him and she's actually warning him, you know, like, like she actually does care. She doesn't want to use her, her new power on Jimmy, but then Jimmy just pushes her buttons and she gives in and she's like, all right, this guy's going down. Such a strange idea of this female actress giving fellatio to the male version of the female actress. It's like female <laughs> trouble. Female, That is yeah. female trouble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's to me, like I said, this is where everything kind of kicks into high gear, even though I was very surprised to look down at the, the counter and this, there's still like, 
20 minutes to go in this film and i think they pace it out well but it feels like okay now we're going now we've got margaret has fully embraced this power that she has and can go on from here and then you've got um adrian getting in on the act and adrian i don't know would you consider what she's doing to be a rape of margaret yeah because margaret doesn't want to do it i mean adrian's forcing herself on her so that would count as rape Margaret going out to the club again and finding the first guy who raped her and kind of forcing herself on him so that the alien will take care of some business here as well. And really, it's just her kind of embracing this power now. And then eventually we get to the end of the film where it all kind of coheses into that. But yeah, I don't really want to give away the very, very end of the film, because I find that to be something that people should be watching as well. This, it, I'm trying to think if this film, it's fairly readily available out there, and then it's even kind of making some appearances. I know, Skiz, you saw this down in Maryland, just, uh, what was that, in March? Uh, early May. Yeah, uh, Slava came to Maryland and screened his own personal 35mm print, which... I, I hate to say that at this point when a uh, film screening is hyped as shown on 35, I'm a little weary because those prints don't necessarily hold up that great after 30 years. It was still great to see the film and it was great to hear his Q&A. I, I, I learned a few things that I didn't know about the film. And I, when it was all over, I was one of two people that waited around to get him to autograph our copies of the soundtrack album. One of the things that he explained, and now again, his accent was very strong, and I'm hard of hearing, and his microphone wasn't as loud as it could have been. So I'm hoping I heard everything correctly and remember it correctly. Uh, but one of the questions is, how come we never saw the main cast in anything else after this? I, if I remember correctly, Anne Carlisle, the only thing I ever saw her in after this was Desperately Seeking Susan, and it's like a very small role in that. I'm not even sure she has a line. But Slava explained that, if I remember correctly and understood it correctly, that Anne met somebody and got involved in somebody and found religion and sort of turned her back on her past and then is is over that now. Uh, <laughs> I hope I got that right. And then Paula, Adrian, kept getting uh, asked for her SAG dues, Screen Actors Guild dues, and just got tired of it and you know tore up her SAG card and got out of show business just because she didn't feel like paying the dues i i think you know slava could probably explain that a lot better and how did the print look uh the print looked a little faded and a little scratched there are some frames missing the sound wasn't as clear as it as it could have been which is really sad because that music played loud through a, a good sound system is is really great but uh yeah unfortunately it, it, i i think i would have rather seen a a really good digital restoration on video than, than watch the print. Right now, Quentin Tarantino is just pulling his hair out. They've done wonders with digital video in the last 10 years. I'd much rather see a film that's not missing frames. And, you know, I, I think a good restored digital print is closer to what the filmmaker, you know, allows the audience to see it closer to what the filmmaker had in mind than a 30-year-old print that's faded and, and falling apart. So, Skiz, you mentioned that the music sounds really good over a sound system. Rob, I know you're a big fan of the soundtrack. No, actually, uh, as I mentioned at the top, the incidentals in here 
got repetitive and annoying to me. Um, it almost sounded like casino music, just sort of this like uh, like it sounded like jackpots going off or something at times, you know, and and it just got a little repetitive for me. So that that made it hard for me to kind of keep with it because I'm like, oh, not that. I'm like, no, not more of that. You know, I just I it, it was not. It's not one of my favorite soundtracks, sorry. Well, they could have been playing Adios Amigo. Fucking Adios Amigo. <laughs> <laughs> go if, if you don't know what we're talking about, go listen to the Boss Nigger episode. And I talk about how Adios Amigo theme plays, what, like five times in the first ten minutes? Oh, yeah. Or, yeah, or 15 minutes. It's, yeah. Damn it, we paid for this song. We're going to use it. Put it in again. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder if Silence might have been a little bit more golden, but I can understand where he was coming from, uh, Slava, to put this music in. And it really, I mean, it, it gives atmosphere for me. The last time I watched this film, I actually didn't watch it. I listened to it, and it got a little drony for me just listening to it. But it was also a little bit hypnotic, too. I kind of just let it wash over me. But I can see where you're coming from with that. And I think that that just may be by virtue of, like I've talked about before on the show, just being someone who works in radio and appreciating, like last week when we had Let's Scare Jessica and talking about how all of that in terms of atmosphere and everything really builds really well and here it just it just felt repetitive and and grating and i i wasn't understanding why he was continuing to use it over and over and over again it just it it, it was almost it almost got to the point with me and i and i understand how people feel about him kind of like philip glass you know at times for some people like if you're watching koyana scotsy and you hear just like over and over again you're just like ah stop already you know, give me something new, put something else in it. And it was it was almost getting to that point for me. Although I, I do like Philip Glass, I think a little bit better than the score. Knock knock. Who's there? Philip Glass. Philip Glass who? Knock knock. Oh nice. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Or there was that South Park uh one where they made fun of Philip Glass on one of the episodes. As I turn and look into the sun, the rays burn my eyes. How like a turtle the sun looks. What the hell is this? All right, we are going to take a break and play an interview with the director and co-writer of Liquid Sky, Slava Zuckerman, after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts including free shipping when you enter offer code 
Booth. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Hey guys, this is Milky Way. It's Pouch. And we're here to talk to you about dropping loads. That's our podcast. You sure about that? Oh? That is our podcast. Yes. I was tricking you. Uh, oh, I was hoodwinked. How would you describe it? Well, dropping loads is a weird concoction of stuff. Like we have weird news. Okay. We have news about the Florida man. That sounds good. We have the occasional pop culture news. Wow. We talk about dicks a lot too. Grab your dick. And drop some loads at droppingloadsproductions.com. Hi, I'm Steven Seagal. That's right, Steven Seagal. And for the past 40 years, in between barbecue and oxen and roasting bull for my insatiable appetite, I never miss an episode of Dr. Action and the Kick-Ass Kid Commentaries. Ain't that right, Johnny? Hi, I'm Dr. Action. Hi, and I'm the Kick-Ass Kid. When I'm not watching action films, I'm usually polishing my gun while looking at a bat. And when I'm not watching action films, I'm normally outside with a harpoon killing puppies. But usually, you can find us both watching 80s, 90s action films. You could follow us on Twitter, Dr. Action Kick-Ass. You can find us on our main page, which is dractionkickass.blogspot.com. You can also find us on iTunes and TalkShoe. Yes, every week we do a commentary on an 80s and 90s action classic, and where we can, we also provide the film so that you can watch along with it. This podcast explodes. Hey, where's that baby mama at? I gotta tell you somebody. How did you get into the film business? How did you become a filmmaker? I always been interested as long as I remember myself. When I was eight years old, I made something which I called movie, uh, which obviously back then couldn't be a movie, but I called it. And the, all the kids uh, from the area were coming to my place. I was producing uh, some theatrical pieces with them. Puppet made puppet theater. I always wanted to be a film director. I mean director film director, theater director. Though uh, at, at the time of, uh, of me growing up in Russia, it wasn't so easy for me because I was Jewish and uh, was great state anti-Semitism. There was only one film school in Ru- for entire Russia, which was uh, taking 12 people a year to director's department. So obviously not Jewish. So because of that, I went first to the uh, construction engineering school, architecture and construction engineering. The reason, by the way, was as well that Eisenstein was graduated from construction engineering school as well. And actually, our, our institute, our construction engineering school in this sense was very good because a couple of the biggest Russian stars, five or six famous dramatists and other writers and a big bunch of film directors came from our school. So I made uh, I made uh, my theater uh, and and film and and, and and amateur film studio, and I made my first shot, which was a good first prize at Russian Film Festival and some prizes abroad, and really was released released nationally. The film which I most made when I was 21 years old as a student of construction engineering school, and only after that I got to film school. And that's that's the story. What was the film scene like for you back in those early days? 
Actually, it's a movement which was called Amateur Just Started. The reason was uh, that, uh, as I said, uh, getting to film school was almost impossible, and everybody who tried to make films uh, tried to find some way to make films. Most of it was financed by, like, by institutes and uh, factories where people worked, and uh, it was like movement. Uh, While well, speaking about specifically my film and my studio, it's really very difficult to call amateur. Amateur filmmaking at that moment in the world was 16mm filmmaking. In Russia, there were no yet 16mm cameras. You couldn't even make 16mm. So our film was 35mm. And what uh, Russian government did, they sent these amateur films to world festivals, they, they they were transferring them from 35mm to 16 So actually what I did was the first independent film in Russian history, not, not, a, not an amateur film. It was called uh, I Believe to Spring. It's like small, short uh, love story. And because we couldn't, uh, certainly couldn't get sync camera, I wrote a script which uh, had no dialogue. So everything was like silent movie but realistic, realistically created situations when people don't speak. What were some of your earlier films like uh, along with that one? My films were absolutely always earliest and today all the different. I never I was choosing genres. I was making films of all the types. Actually, with my friend, the first couple of films we made, the first was a documentary about students' life. Second was a animation uh, made for uh, then students had a program at the state television we made an animation which was included into the into this program and was playing at state animation so all was before i was 20 years old so actually i started making all the genres of film as early as i could was there any particular genre that you enjoyed more than others well, I enjoyed the prose itself. It didn't ma- at that moment, it didn't matter to me what kind of film to, to make. But just making film was a great pleasure. When we made this animation, we actually made it on 16 millimeter. Uh, and because everything was like built, built by hand, there wasn't even a lab in Moscow where you couldn't de- develop it. So we really built our own lab. We were developing this film ourselves. Wow. What was going on in Russia that things were just so difficult for filmmakers at that time? You know, Russia Russia was making uh, Sputniks, you know, uh, uh, missiles and ballet and all things like that. But film film was really very uh, a light thing. You not so many films were made. Actually, even today in Russia, made much much less films than in the United States. And at Stalin's time. Uh, which not many people know, but in the last years of life of Stalin, like in the 50s, where three, four, five films were ever made in the entire Russia. So the uh, so 60s became a time of slow, slow, slow rebirth of film industry. And, and this amateur movement was a big, big part of it. But a, lot of, a lot of members of this movement went finally to film school and became professional filmmakers. Was it Stalin kind of coming into power, you think, that slowed down the film movement? Because Russia was a, a powerhouse of film in the early days. Yes, well, at that moment, the last 
years of life of Stalin, uh, Stalin personally edited every script. It was the only producer in Russia, Stalin himself. And because uh, all the uh, all the producers, like all the all the uh, executives at studios and all that, they knew that if something is wrong and film is politically uh, is not approved by Stalin, they could get to prison and even executed. So they were afraid to make films, but they tried to make films which make there's no risk at all, like adaptation of all the Pirata or something like that. So just nobody wanted to make serious films at last last years of Stalin's life. When you were making films, did you run into any kind of state control problems, any censorship? Oh, absolutely. Uh, like, uh, I mean, there are, there are millions of stories I can tell you. Uh, first of all, uh, well, I was working several years for a studio of uh, science documentaries and educational films. And I was making films of uh, very strange genres. I was making films where I mixed science, uh, documentary, animation, uh, and, and actors using very famous actors was like uh, films on a science subject, an abstract science and philosophical subject made this strange way. And uh, and it was like a, a rule of my life. I made a film which they were uh, banned, from, like they, in Russian slang, they put them on the shelf, not, re- not released. After that, I was, you know, uh, I, I, I was checked. Every step was checked. So I was taking the worst script in the studio, which nobody wanted to make. I was making it the way that I was getting all the prices. Uh, I was praised for this film tremendously. And after that next film, I again made something which was shelved. That was like a strange system. You, you make... Uh, you, you you make bosses love you. After that, you you make what you like. Then you punish again, and again you make something which your bosses love very much. And then my last film, which I made in Russia, was really not exactly film. It was like TV theater. It was done for Moscow, Moscow Central TV. Uh, it was a comedy. It was about. Uh, old 19th century Russian vaudeville. I really took the actual text, put them all together, and made made a very funny thing. And this very funny thing was the shoot back then. There wasn't yet video editing, so all the productions like it was shoot like six or seven cameras. Very difficult process, but you you didn't have the source materials. You had only one copy of the video, right? So it was so funny that uh, cameramen had problem to work. They were falling falling down from laughter. And uh, at that moment, they, they had the yearly... Uh, so it's very difficult to translate Russian Russian terms, Russian slang, like Hutsavet. I don't know how to call it. Like the like like a council of all the directors and editors and, and and producers of the studio, and they decided that this my film is the best production of the year. But at that moment, they changed the head of all the Russian TV and radio, like a new minister of radio and television, person who became very famous lately for his uh, 
anti-Semitic and very reactionary, very tight communist uh, behavior. When I finished this film, he was just one first, it was first month of his work, and he was sitting uh, sitting at home at TV set and watching everything shown on the first channel. So because uh, the executives of the studio wanted to please him, they uh, put my film on the first channel out of program. It wasn't planned. You know, nobody knew that film was going to play this day. They just put it instead of something else because they wanted to please new boss. And new boss watched it, and then we asked him, so what do you think? They said, don't repeat it. That was all that he said. Nobody, nobody, people were afraid to say him that they, uh, that they already decided that that's the best program of the year. <laughs> they just ruined it. It doesn't exist. That was called Vaudeville about Vaudeville. So that's about censorship. Well, I can tell a lot of stories about this thing. I don't think that should be made subject of our conversation. You said that was the last one that you made in uh, Russia. Where did you go after that? Uh, after that, I emigrated. Actually, I made at the same time another film, which was which was banned, a philosophical film which uh, survived with famous Russian actor there. But uh, but it was banned as well. And look, I, at that moment, I already made my decision to emigrate. And, and uh, uh, migration to Israel started. It wasn't uh, kind of easy because then you applied for visa to leave. You never knew what will be the res- result. You, they could let you go and they, they could put you into prison and they could could just throw you out of your job and you could live like that for many years, which happened with many people. But I was lucky. And it was 1973. My wife and I, we left Russia. Uh, left Russia. Uh, then I came to Israel. Then I was making uh, TV documentaries very successfully. My first documentary made the good first prize in the Hollywood uh, TV film festival it doesn't exist anymore. I think this festival, and uh, that was the story. And then three years after three years in Israel, I came to America with the idea that I need three, four years to study life, to learn the life, and to learn all the specifics, and to meet a lot of people, and to make my first independent film. And that's happened exactly like that. After several projects, which I didn't manage to start, uh, Liquid Sky was made. What was the culture like? I know it must have been quite a different culture for you to go from Russia to Israel to the United States, but what was it like in the U.S. at that time, and how did you experience it? Well, uh, you know, filmmaking, I think, is the same everywhere. Uh, if you're a good filmmaker, you're a good filmmaker. And not all the, you know, in classic Hollywood, and like in 30s and 40s, uh, a very big part of American directors were new immigrants from Germany, from Hungary, from all over the world. It wasn't, there was nothing uh, special about that. In my time, only two, I think, uh, foreign directors from Eastern Europe made career in Hollywood. It wasn't easy. And many people tried, not many people managed, I think, for a very specific reason. That this Iron Curtain really existed. A person who spent the entire life in, uh, in like, say, in Soviet Union uh, could hardly understand life in America. 
so uh, I think the uh, successful adaptation to new life depended on willing, willingness to adopt. If you wanted to become an American, you were becoming American. I realized these things in Israel very fast, that uh, it takes time to adopt a new country. And if you do it with pleasure, if you want to do it, you'll do it. If not, not. Uh, so in America, I was eagerly, eagerly learning new life for me. I loved mostly what I've seen around. I enjoyed it. And well, people were asking all the time why I made Liquid Sky. It was the most unexpected subject for somebody who came from Russia, right? Uh, um, uh, there was one critic uh, who wrote in review that Zuckerman made this film uh, because uh, he uh, made in this everything which was forbidden in Russia. It was like a collection of everything that he couldn't make in Russia. Maybe there is some truth in it, I don't know. But I haven't seen it like that. I just uh, had an idea of film and made it. Yeah, where did the idea come from for Liquid Sky? It's uh, not so easy to explain in uh, in two words because it's not one idea, it's a lot of ideas. Like I loved Andy Warhol and thought that what he made in, in paintings never was made in, uh, in, in film and I wanted to make film like that. That's one of things. Another thing, I really thought that uh, film needs new language. If you remember, uh, like in 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 in, in uh, late fifties and sixties, there was a big crisis in American film industry. Uh, audience, young audience, went to rock and roll, and old audience went to TV, and films were not making money. Actually, every, everything changed after Star Wars. And it was not much time passed after Star Wars when I came to America. It's still a lot, a lot of things which uh, should change the style of films were not made yet. So I consciously wanted to to change the style of film, including a lot of uh, sensibility of rock and roll and new new young culture and the experience of what was in. Uh, in, in, in European film. Actually, uh, I just wanted to take all the legends of the time, all the myths like rock and roll, sex, aliens from out of, uh, out of space, and, and build them around the uh, basic, basic myths of Hollywood, a story of, a story of modern Cinderella, a girl who is trying to find her prince. And so I made like anti-fairy tale, like uh, included parody of all the myths, all the elements uh, around. And I did it because that was interesting to me. That's what I wanted to uh, wanted to do. Later, uh, I learned that there is a term postmodern, and you know people started calling this things postmodern. But then I was making it. I didn't know that it's postmodern. The film is, is so steeped in um, the new wave scene. Were you very involved in that culture, or did you kind of just use that as as something to build off of? I heard about that a new little bit, but not much. And actually, I was making previous project which didn't happen, but I uh, but I uh, uh, made 
casting for the previous project. And uh, among the uh, young actors whom I chose were a lot of people who belong to a new wave. Uh, first of all, Anne Carlyle, who's uh, playing Likvitskaya to leading parts, and became close friends. My wife, who's a scriptwriter and producer too, uh, was writing scripts, a realistic script uh, about sexual problems of one woman, uh, and, uh, and she invited Anne to write script with her. By the way, before that, I already had, had a conversation with Anne Carlyle about my previous script, which we never made film out, and Anne said, that's a, that's a real new wave script about my previous script. And I, uh, well, I you, but I like, you know, wanted to look like I really don't know what's that. I ask her, what's new wave? But really, I didn't know much. So, uh, so I was kind of surrounded by the people who were involved. I never, uh, I never been involved in any uh, movements like that myself. I guess it's not the director's, uh, not the director's uh, role. The director should be always uh, involved only partly to be inside and outside at the same time. But all these people were. Uh, Taking me and my life like friends, we never had any, we never had any problems dealing with each other. We loved each other. I was curious, what was the filmmaking scene like back then? It seems like this was kind of a, a good time to be a filmmaker in New York. You know, I wasn't uh, at the moment of making Liquid Sky. I wasn't very much involved in the filmmaking circles. Really, like people uh, uh, think about uh, Liquid Sky, you probably had a lot of fun uh, shooting it because they think that we were like uh, uh, using cocaine day and night and all that. It wasn't like that at all. It's pretty difficult to shoot low budget film like that. We're shooting like 18 hours a day. It was hard hard work and uh, and as much as I knew uh, Liquid Sky was only completely drug free production in New York at that moment drugs were not permitted on the set uh, because film never would be finished if it were permitted so it's not because uh, some idealistic uh, principles just production principles so uh, after Liquid Sky, I had much more filmmaker friends and all that. And uh, I don't know. I think the independent uh, filmmakers' uh, life was the same in all the countries. I don't. I don't think it was something specific about his life. You talked a little about um, having casted an earlier film and then they kind of migrated onto Liquid Sky. Was that pretty much your main cast or did you have to add anybody when it came to creating Liquid Sky? With casting previous project, Liquid Sky really wasn't casted in general meaning of this word because um, one of my ideas was to write script for specific uh, people. And we used real characters of the people whom we wanted to use in the film. So we were writing script uh, and we knew who's going to play whom and they really were these characters. In, in real life, they were very close to what was in the film. That was the part of sensibility of 
of the time in the European cinema, people try to be super realistic. My idea was that that should be mixed together with super theatrical because this film is very much like Brecht's play. It's very theatrical, but at the same time, everybody's playing himself, so it's at the same time super realistic and super theatrical. How did Anne Carlyle end up playing two roles in this? That was one of the things which was changed from original idea. Original idea uh, in the script was a real uh, boy who, for whom this role was written and who's, who was very much like character in the film. And then he read the script, he was uh, shocked. He didn't uh, recognize himself. He didn't like it. And uh, we started uh, thinking about casting this role. But um, deep in my heart, I always have this feeling that how good it will be to try and to play boy as well. So, and as I said, Anne was living together with my wife and me. So one night we just dressed her as, as a boy and then went to nightclub and nobody recognized that she's not a boy. It doesn't mean that uh, she was exactly like that night was in the film. Really was made a lot of makeup deaths. Uh, we change a lot of uh, images before we really chose the image of Jimmy in the film. But one thing which impressed me very much as well is I was told that, that she was a very little girl. Uh, her mother used to dress her as a boy and call Jimmy because she wanted a son. And so that's why the boy got his name Jimmy. What was that process like with you and your wife and Anne kind of working together and crafting this? Well, writing, I mean, there was all, all possible ways. I should tell us, I told that shooting was very difficult. Obviously, shooting of low-budget film is a difficult thing. But writing was complete pleasure. I never enjoyed myself more than when we were writing the script. We were laughing all the time. And it was funny, it was interesting. Uh, sometimes we were inviting uh, our characters, future actors, uh, to dinner or something and try to create similar atmosphere to look how they would behave in order to use their dialogue. So it was really, uh, really uh, funny, I think. Not, uh, uh, there was uh, some division of labor in basic. Basic, like I was trying to keep everything close to the structure I had in my mind, speaking about all about life of uh, people, uh, my, my, uh, all the new wave people. I think almost during writing and during shooting, and, and uh, had kind of a right of veto, because I would never do anything which she would say that these people will never make in real life. She was uh, she was really very serious about being true to the characters, and I completely shared this belief. What was it like working with Paula Shepard? Well, Paula Shepard was cast for the previous film, uh, which never happened for the leading part. So she became a friend as well. Uh, there wasn't role for her in the script Liquid Sky. Uh, that was the second, the boy who was replaced by Anne, and there was a girl who was uh, very close to the character of the script, and she was shocked by reading script as well. And I decided that it's uh, maybe I could convince her to play, but I didn't want to have uh, to have 
somebody who's negative about script in the production. And then, uh, then we really tried to cast the role, was working very, very hard to cast this role. And I didn't like all the actresses which were coming because I didn't believe them. It was easy, very easy for any professional actor to show how punk look and behave like punk, but I didn't trust them. They didn't have real feelings. And Paula, I think, uh, I'm very sorry that her artistic career didn't happen because she is a real, real big talent. And then I said it will be Paula. Nobody believed me because Paula was a very completely different character. She was like like a person of sixes, very lovable, very open and all that. Like hippie very much. And then she first she loved the idea that she's playing one of the leading parts, then she read script and said that she would never be able to play this horrible woman. And then Anne and I spent like half of the day uh, reading this Paula script, explaining her every line, uh, motives why this woman behaves this way. And being a very good actress, Paula got it immediately and got so close to this character that really even her behavior on the set, it's, she started to be very difficult and negative. <laughs> she uh, she really great actress. I'm very sorry really that she left the film business. Do you know why she left the film business? Well, uh, she uh, before Liquid Sky, she she played leading part in the horror film Alice with Alice. And after Liquid Sky, in a couple of years, the people who made Alice with Callis called me because they couldn't find Paula. They wanted to make Alice with Alice too. And I gave, gave them all the addresses and telephones of all the Paula's, Paula's relatives and friends, which I had, but they never found her. And now I'm, uh, you know, I... In the internet, you can find some information. Last thing which I read was that she is living some somewhere near Seattle and has husband and many children. But I never managed to meet her again. One of the things that I really find striking about the film is the editing style that is going on and just how many quick cuts there are. What was the decision as far as um, the editing scheme that you're going to have with the film? Well, I'm, uh, you know, uh, Russian film tradition is very much concentrated on editing, start, starting from Eisenstein. And actually, my teacher in film school was Kuleshov, was the first person who uh, really discovered editing as, as a film language and who was teacher of Eisenstein as well. If you open, you know, Wikipedia and look, effect of Kuleshov. It's really the first understanding of what editing does creatively was made by my teacher Kuleshov. And I was, uh, so in, in film school, we all were uh, taught, first of all, editing. First of all, editing. Actually, most of my films before, uh, I, in a sense, I edited myself. Uh, so the style of editing, obviously, that's my style. Um, and why it's uh, this style was difficult to tell. They just felt to do it like that. Maybe if film will be high budget, it would be a little bit different because uh, I had some ideas which were completely impossible to do with budget I had. Like I, I would if I 
could shoot like twice longer, I probably would shoot a lot of things, not with not with shortcuts, but in one shot the entire episode. But that's too too difficult for low budget production. How did you do that uh, kind of solarization effect that occurs a few times in the film? Well, uh, my DP uh, uh, speaking about speaking about uh, about uh, returning to our conversation about film amateurs in Russia. Then I was student in film school. Another uh, another uh, my friend from time of uh, amateurs was a student of uh, of DP of DP uh, division of film school, and he came once to me and said that he still has a uh, has a uh, he's a head of amateur studio of high school students the children, and he among his students there is a 15 years old boy who is a genius. And that's how I met first time Yuri Neyman, who became DP of Liquid Sky. So uh, I knew him from him being 15 years old. And when he left Russia, he already was considered to be one of the best Russian DPs, plus one of the best Russian creators of special effects. Uh, speaking of myself, in all my films before, I said that even uh, even developed film ourselves. Obviously, I made in all my previous films all the special effects I made myself. So we both were uh, great uh, special effects, and that was one of the reasons why I decided to make Liquid Sky because nobody was making at that moment uh, low budget films with a lot of special effects, but we knew how to do it. And Yuri made a lot of solarization before in Russia. And uh, he knew a photographer, not this type of solarization, because that's not chemical. He knew uh, best American photographers who made this effect. So he borrowed from the famous photographer his uh, computer equipment, which uh, it was not, not really, it wasn't computer equipment called back then, but nobody had computers. It was a special uh, computer machine made for making this effect for some military research. It was a very technical thing and never been used for film because you couldn't, it wasn't, you know, stable. You can you, you couldn't keep this effect. You could make steel, but you cannot keep it long. In the uh, and uh, and uh, and then he borrowed this computer. Yuri, we together, he and me, we really found the way how to reshoot it to the film, which is you know we're not advertising our technical secrets, and now nobody needs this technical secret because everyone can make solicitation of his home computer. <laughs> It's anymore, <laughs> not, not a problem anymore. <laughs> so back then, back then, the first thing which happened after uh, Liquid Sky release, somebody calls to Yuri and asks for big money to shoot this way commercial. Yuri came to me and said, should we give this effect to commercial? I said, no, I don't think so, because then it will not be unique in our film. We shouldn't do it. And Yuri didn't agree to use it as a commercial. So for, for many years, our film was the only one film with civilization. So you directed this, you wrote it, you edited, you produced it, and you also did some of the music on this. How did you get involved with that? That was another story. 
I knew exactly what music I want for this film. I wanted like a primitive electronic circus. And I was calling to all the electronic composers who existed back then in New York. I still have somewhere a big box with the Dima, Dima cassettes. They all, uh, computer music didn't exist yet. It was just mock synthesizers. People played on synthesizers. And in order to create uh, music, was a very hard job to create complicated music. And they all wanted to make complicated, like mimic big symphony orchestra. That's what they tried. And when I asked them to do something primitive, they just didn't understand why I want so stupid things. And then somebody told me that first uh, computer created Firewide computer musical instruments, and there are a couple of places in New York. One of places was called PASS, a public access synthesizers, and two young composers, boy and girl, were teaching everybody who wants uh, for money to use it. So I came there and invited the girl to work with me, and then she said, uh, we were fighting all the time, her taste was different from mine, and then she said, if you know so well how you, uh, uh, what you need, why wouldn't you write this music myself? I said, well, if you help me to put it into the computer, I'll do it, well, I have no choice. And that's how it's happened. Well, that was, that's, that's how it happened. I, you know, collaborated with them. They were doing what I couldn't, and I was bringing my musical ideas. Actually, I liked it very much, and music music became very popular. And I'm sorry that you know I had a lot of proposals to write my music, but I was so busy with trying to uh, to sell. Uh, my film ideas because everybody wanted me to do something the same like Liquid Sky but less shocking which I thought is completely useless to the films like that and I didn't want to do it but I had a lot of original ideas which was very very difficult to finance still very difficult and uh, I'm very stubborn and want to make only films which I want to do You mentioned uh, you know shooting low-budget film that it was very challenging. What were some of the, the biggest challenges that you had to overcome when it came to shooting Liquid Sky? Well, uh, I think everything is everything is challenge, but I, uh, you know, I really had a lot of experience starting from my first film to do film when you have nothing. So, uh, I think mostly in every low-budget film, if you try to make it good, uh, the main uh, problem is time. Uh, I guess today it's so much easier because everybody can afford uh, computer uh, or, or digital equipment. Uh, in uh, back then, in, I think the biggest problem was uh, film because the biggest cost in film production was, was cost of the film and laboratory. So if you make many takes, you make film much more expensive. The more you shoot, the more. So you need to manage shooting with less takes. Actually, it was one of my reasons to go more with special effects because special effects didn't demand me to spend a lot of film, right? And uh, shooting with actors, like if you guys said, I would, for, for example, shoot very long uh, shots with camera movement. 
you cannot make it unless you uh, made many takes and many rehearsals, so you spent a lot of time. And uh, I tried first day of shooting, I realized that I cannot do it, and I went to the shortcuts. A shortcuts helps helps help you very much to create more a visually interesting film. I really like that you shot so many of the rehearsals. What was the decision behind doing that? Well, the thing I think everyone who wants to make film cheaper and better makes a lot of rehearsals, especially if you shoot a non-union actors. You can have as many rehearsals as you want, and that doesn't cost you because you don't pay for film. And the rehearsals are made on video, which didn't, didn't cost anything. And we could rehearse different styles and find the best way of playing. What kind of time frame was it? How long did you do the rehearsals before you finally said, okay, this is it, we're going to shoot it? I don't think that we put it this way. It, was, uh, it wasn't like uh, it took a long time to rehearse. We just tried different things. I've uh, seen that everybody knows what, what he's playing and how to play it. I don't think it was long. I, I don't think it was even a question because I guess we had... Well, it was long ago. I don't remember exactly, but I guess we had the day of shooting, of beginning to shoot film, and had enough time to prepare. It wasn't like, oh, let's rehearse more, let's rehearse more. It was pretty, pretty easy. Once the film was completed, how did it get distributed? Well, that was uh, we were showing it to a lot of distributors and a lot of some distributors, uh, like big studios, uh, didn't want to do it. Actually, uh, we had a conversation, the head of acquisition, I think, of Warner Brothers. And the woman, head of acquisition, said phrase which completely shocked our executive producer, who, who had no film experience before, was with money. She said the film has a great, artist, ar- great artistic value, great production value and no commercial value whatsoever. And he said, how can it be? That's <laughs> what makes no sense. She said, listen, you think about the audience which like it? Yes, of course, the audience would like it because of this artistic and <laughs> production value, but major studios don't work like that. We need you know, to know that like several millions of people in Texas would like it in order to distribute film. So then there were a lot of independent distributors who really wanted to to do it, and but they were afraid, but they wanted very much because they loved the film. And finally, we chose a small distribution company, which we thought would do it the best. That's, uh, that's the usual process. Actually, back then, I guess the situation was better than today. Uh, for for one reason that there were not so many independent uh, low budget good films, they were pretty rare thing. Today, uh, today because of, uh, of this digital cinema makes it cheaper. Today there are so many uh, independent films and markets. I think may change completely. There are so many films released every day. What was the reaction like when the film started to get out there? Well, the reaction was fantastic. I mean, the both critic, critical and audience. Critical, uh, our distributors even advertise, uh, advertise film as the most loved by critics film of the year. And 
and the uh, audience uh, well it was a long story it wasn't created in one day but in New York a film played in uh, in, all, in the same theater for almost four years and the same in Boston and the same in Washington D.C. and in all these places it could play for many years more it's just theaters couldn't hold it longer but uh, but the last day of playing in, in Waverly Theater in New York it was making more more money than all the other just released films yeah, and there's a lot of uh, themes of alienation and literal aliens, as well as um, people coming over from other countries, especially like the Johan character. Do you kind of see yourself in that Johan role sometimes? Um, no, not the, you know. I wanted this guy to be German for many reasons. I think like uh, the general. Uh, uh, play around the world, uh, alien, alienation, and all that. Of course, I included the idea of, uh, of alien from another country, and it was included as this German, York, uh, German right. But I don't think that uh, I identified myself with German. The funny thing, if to speak of identification, I would of all the characters, I probably identify myself more well with Margaret, <laughs> but, but I didn't need it because I had real Margaret and Carlyle was real Margaret. <laughs> Though I tell you, like, I was writing a shooting script alone uh, in Key West. And I don't remember, maybe not Key West, but I always was making my main writing trying to go out of home somewhere far away. And uh, and I realized at the moment that something is missing in the script. And I, I, I realized that we need a monologue of Margaret, which would really tell all the main ideas. And I wrote this man, monologue doing alone without my female characters. And then I came uh, back home and gave them to read it, I was afraid very much that they won't like it because I'm not a woman and I'm not a you know, not not a punk girl who can find find a boy. And, but they didn't change a word in this monologue. So I was very proud of my being so deep in this character. I have read recently that you're going to be doing a sequel, is that true? Yes, we still uh, starting, though we wrote a big part of this script we need to have a lot of ideas how to do it uh, we will not didn't start yet raising money because I don't know which of ways is the best but actually like with uh, Liquid it took me many years I had a lot of proposals to make Liquid Sky 2 but I always was answering that I don't know how to do it and it's very complicated and so on but last year the idea really came to my mind and Anne loved the idea and I believe it like with first Liquid Sky, I believe that it will be very great success. The same with the second one. I do believe that it will be very successful film. So Anne is going to still be involved with this? Oh, yeah. We wrote a script together, and she's going to play Margaret. That was one of the ideas, that Margaret comes back. And and that's what made Anne so excited about this idea. So uh, I know how to do it, and script is very much... Well, I know exactly what should be in the script. It's uh, it's very close to uh, production, besides of the fact that, as I told, we didn't start yet raising money. 
I want to know what is your opinion? Why do you think Liquid Sky, all these years later, still holds such a, a very near and dear place to a lot of people's hearts? Well, it's difficult to. I know why it was very successful when it was made. Uh, why it has so long life? I'm proud of it. I guess because it's a true, true, true cult film. Uh, you know that when we just throw the script. Uh, first person who read it was Ben Barenholtz. He was a famous distributor who created the idea of uh, night night show, late night shows, and all that. He was the greatest specialist in, in cult films, and he was our friend. That's why we showed him the script. And he read the script. He asked me, "Slava, you plan? It looks like you plan to make a cult film." I said, "Yes, I do." He said, well, I am a great specialist on the subject, and I should tell you that it's impossible. Nobody ever managed to uh, pre-plan a cult film. It's just happening. I said, let's see. And actually, I think Ben did believe me because he tried to be a producer. He tried to raise money for the film, but he didn't manage. But his opinion helped us to get money very much because because he was a really very admirable judge of the, of the subject. Are you going to be shooting the new one in New York? I have a lot of proposals. After this idea was born, I'm getting emails from people from different places, like Berlin, that come to shoot in Berlin. We have here everything to do the best, it's cheap, and so on and so on. And actually, uh, I probably would go to cheaper place to shoot it, but I think that uh, Liquid case quintessentially a New York story. I cannot move it to a different place. back and thanks to Mr. Zuckerman for talking to us about Liquid Sky and you know Mike at the top of the show you said you weren't quite sure if this film still holds up and I think that might be a good conversation to have coming out of the interview as to uh, how do you feel about it I mean it is a now a 32 year old film hard to believe uh, that we consider 1982 32 years ago but yes it is and uh, so what do you think does it still work on its own terms today or is it definitely a piece uh, that lives within its era. It was funny to go back and read some of the reviews from the time. I read like the Janet Maslin review, and there was another review, I think, from Film Comment, and they seemed really kind of glossy, and they seemed to be very kind of captivated uh, to what you were saying earlier, Rob, as far as like the you know the alien, and really that seemed to be what was catching them. I think there's a lot more to this film, and I think that age is kind of helping when it comes to being able to look at this as more than this kooky new wave music and this new wave scene, which kind of, as the title implies, it was new at the time. So I definitely think that there's more to this film and that time can offer us a little better perspective on it. What do you think, Skiz? I mean, I was concerned that the film didn't hold up. 
not not necessarily. I mean, I I can watch it and enjoy it because every time I see it, it takes me back to being this young alienated kid discovering it for the first time. But I would worry that if I were to show it to somebody for the first time, that that they wouldn't see what I'm seeing. Uh, and I think it's a lot of that just has to do with how much filmmaking has come along since then. Pacing is different now. Production values are different now. Liquid Sky was a very weird movie at the time, but there's been a lot of weirdness since then. So it, it might not seem as weird now as it did then. And like I was saying earlier, that, that uh, you know the idea that it was a time capsule, I really think it was a time capsule from a few years later. So when people think of it as this dated 80s fashion show, I don't think they're realizing that that fashion, that was not – very common at the time it may have become common five or six years later but it, you know at the time it, it wasn't and i am pretty much uh when this film came out i was four so i can't <laughs> i can't speak <laughs> to the air all that much but the whole idea of it for me it, it kind of like i said it, it kind of seems to have New York of that era, and we've talked about this before, like movies like Taxi Driver or things like that. I mean, it's it's very specific in that era when you see it. And in terms of like you were saying, the what that would influence, like the hairstyle and the clothes and stuff like that, it was a few years before. But I think that that's really what makes it interesting to watch is because it does have that stuff. And if you were going to, I don't know, do some sort of film based in sort of club scene underground club scene early 80s in new york this would give you a good idea of like how to do your designs and whatnot because although some of it is a little far out yeah it still seems very contemporary of that time unlike uh i, I when i was reading online various things they're like it's a science fiction film i'm like is it really a science fiction film i'm like it does have aliens in it but that doesn't necessarily make it a science fiction film because it has a ufo it to me seems more like a character drama and people relating to each other and more like a drug film than anything else. I guess I saw it as a science fiction film because I I assumed that it wasn't taking place in the present. You know, when when I first saw it, I wasn't thinking, Oh, this is taking place in the early eighties. I figured it was taking place, you know, sometime in the future. So that you sort of have the feeling of it uh, as maybe someone would have like with Alphaville, where it's shot in mid sixties Paris, but it not necessarily reflects mid sixties Paris. Right, yeah. Wasn't Baltimore always like five years behind New York anyway? Three and a half. Detroit's probably ten years behind or it was <laughs> in that era at least. So hey, you guys at least were kinda hip as opposed to we were totally out of it. Have you heard that new synthesizer music? That sounds so weird. That's what I'm <laughs> telling you, kid. So in the process of researching this movie, I picked up the paperback book because I had read that there was a paperback version of it, and I was like, okay, is this a novelization? And if so, who wrote it? I mean, who's going to write a novelization of Liquid Sky? Well, it was Anne Carlyle, our main characters, Jimmy and Margaret. And I think this was written a few years after the movie came out. The book came out in 87. I don't know when it was written. I don't know if it was written at the time or if she had worked on this afterwards. I really would have liked to have talked to her about this because the book, to me... I mean, my mind was completely blown by this book. It took me, I think I was talking to you about this, case. it took me about 80 pages before I finally figured out what the fuck was going on. <laughs> and once I did, things came together. Because as you're reading this book, 
I don't know if you guys have ever read any of like that um what Cormac McCarthy and and some of these other like more contemporary writers where they're trying to get away from like punctuation and you know other things like that uh the book blindness I can't remember who wrote that there's no punctuation in there this book there's no real break when you go from one character to another so you're there with Margaret, then all of a sudden you're with Paul, and then you're with Sylvia, and then you're with Jimmy, and then you're back to Margaret, and then and you're just bouncing around, and there's no flags to tell you that you're moving from one character to another. Finally, about 80 pages in, I'm amazed I stuck with it this long, about that time I finally realized something, and that made everything so much more clear. And I wrote this in the show notes that it was the Matrix moment. So what if I told you, Rob, that everything that is happening in the film is in Margaret's mind? What if I told you that much like it took you 80 pages to get into the book, it took me probably 60 minutes to get into the film, and I don't really care either way i i know i'm sounding negative on the show but it's like it's not for some reason this film is just not connecting with me uh as well as i want it to i feel disappointed oh poor rob yes we're not gonna bat a thousand so yeah i completely understand well i mean there are aspects of it that i really like but i'm i'm just like have found the film kind of kind of grating at times and also the other one that you asked me to watch in relation to this so feel free to talk about the book but i have no idea uh how it relates because i i didn't look it up i apologize no problem i would i didn't expect you to read this but i was completely blown away by this whole idea that basically the reason why they were skipping around in the book and really in the movie in this whole cross-cutting thing that i had brought up earlier is that while we're with margaret her mind is kind of wandering and going off to these other places. So this whole idea of Sylvia and Johan and Jimmy, and I believe Adrian is real, but some of these other characters are just what she's thinking and this kind of fragmentation of her psyche. It's what you were talking about earlier with Jimmy and Margaret. Really, since they're played by the same actress, they really are the same character. And to me, Jimmy is just this kind of splinter of Margaret. And it, it so much of it is her trying to come to grips with herself kind of through these other characters that she's making up. And that's why I was having such a hard time following the book, because you're going from Here's Margaret, and she's going through a day. Bam, you're over to these other characters. Finally, I realize, oh, she's just go. Her mind is wandering, and she's almost checking in with these other characters. So there are times where she's over in Sylvia's apartment with Johan, and that's what we're seeing. So we're seeing the spacecraft through Johan, and maybe it's there, maybe it's not. I kind of think maybe it's not. I think that this is all her trying to come to grips with herself. I don't know if you agree with that or not, Skiz. Yeah, and I'll admit I'm I'm only on a page uh, 140 of the 186-page book. Yeah, the, the first 80 pages were kind of difficult to get through, especially because scenes that go so quick in the movie take so long to get through in the book. And I was very confused until I realized, wait a minute. I don't know that Paul's wife 
is real or if Paul's wife is somebody that Margaret is imagining. And then also, I I don't know, maybe I missed it. You know, I I could have fallen asleep for a paragraph or two, but it seems very early on in the book, Margaret is completely aware of the alien. And I'm not sure how she found out about the alien. So, yeah, it definitely for for a book that sticks to the movie so closely, it also strays from the movie at the same time in in pretty drastic ways. One thing I did find interesting, though, is that there's dialogue in the book that isn't in the movie. But then watching the DVD extras of the rehearsals, you realize that that dialogue was in the original script. So if anybody like really loves Liquid Sky and wants further character development and backstory, the book is good for that, especially the whole relationship with Owen and uh, Adrian. And like the the three of them, there's like a, a large backstory there that I wouldn't have picked up from from watching the film. And yeah, you know, you just learn a lot more about each character. Does it feel authentic or does it feel like something someone created in order to help, you know, legitimize gaps in their storytelling? I think maybe knowing that she co-wrote the script, I'm thinking maybe it was her way of getting the whole story out there, including everything that was removed from from the film in the editing stage. To me, it feels like the film is a little obtuse at times, if not very obtuse at times, and that this book really just kind of opened up the floodgates for me and showed me what the heck was going on. It felt very much like, oh, okay, and the explanation for everything. I mean, I literally felt like I had taken you know, the red pill, and I was like, or was it the blue pill? And here was the whole world being laid out for me. It's like, oh, now I get it. Now this makes a lot more sense. And especially when it came to some of the relationships and what you were saying, Skiz, as far as the Owen backstory, for me, a lot of the stuff between Jimmy and Sylvia, I mean, that is so much internal monologue kind of thing of Jimmy always asking his mother for money and this kind of like politics that's going on between them and then it's like okay well how much of this is real how much of this is actually margaret and the way that she interacts with her mother rather than this to me fictional character of jimmy and this interaction that's going on in margaret's head as she's kind of thinking about this so it just really uh, it took the blinders off a lot for me i still think i prefer the movie over the book just because i i'm not a big fan of those stories that it was all a dream or was it to me i think the last time i watched the movie having read the book everything just made so much more sense and it just really it, it felt like a much more full experience to me so i can totally understand where rob's at with this having not read this and you shouldn't be expected to have to read a book in order to quote-unquote, get everything that's going on, because I was totally where you were at, Rob, especially the first time I watched this. I was just like, what the hell is Skiz thinking? This movie is crap, and this movie's play- this music's playing over and over again. I still won't say that I'm going to go back to Liquid Sky anytime soon, but I definitely have a much more in-depth appreciation of it after having read this. But again, it's a little sad that I had to read the book in order to get that appreciation. And what I like is that, because you have an appreciation 
without even having read the book, you were just kind of coming to it as this, you know, young film fan and being able to see what the medium could do. Unfortunately, I think with me seeing this, you know, so many years after you had seen it, I didn't necessarily have that same level of appreciation. I have warmed up to it after three viewings. I'm still not at a place where it's going to be something I'll watch. You know, I maybe watch, pull it out in a couple of years and see if, you know, if I feel better about it. But no, I, I, I do agree with you on that. It, it just, if you have to read supplemental materials in order to get the thing to work for you, it just sort of seems like it doesn't work on its own terms. And, and I can understand where, where Skiz is coming from in terms of his, his interest in it because there is a certain amount of, uh, and, and I hate this word, and I've said that several times on the, on the show before, of nostalgia, that it's, it, it's wrapped in something in your past, and that's why it's, you like it. And maybe if you didn't have it wrapped in something in your past and you were able to step away from it and look at it, you might not find it as interesting. I will say, though, and I think I already said it, that the first time I saw it, I was pretty confused but it did take me several viewings before the story all made sense. So I, I, mean, I was able to make sense out of the whole thing without having to read anything, but, it did, but I did have to watch it a few times. One of the things I really liked about the film and the book after having read the book and kind of reevaluating the film is looking at Margaret as this fractioned person and how she is trying to deal with everything that's going on and this whole idea of like, I mean, the, to me, the rapes may not necessarily be literal. Maybe one of them was, maybe the rest of them aren't kind of thing. I think so much of that is her reaction to the world and trying to make sense of the world and just the way that she's abused by pretty much everybody around her and, you know, severely so. So I really like this whole idea of her trying to make sense of the world by kind of breaking it apart into these different fragments. And I think if the movie is great at anything or really good at anything, it's this whole idea of how Margaret as a woman is dealing with the outside world and what that world was like for her in the early 80s, mid 80s, whatever you want to say, you know, what was that experience like for this young woman? And, you know, it, she talks about her childhood. We have that childhood montage in the film. There's, um, you know, her, that speech that she gives about the. I was taught that my prince would come and he would be a lawyer and I would have his children. And on the weekends we would barbecue. And all the other princes and their princesses would come. And they would say, delicious, delicious. Oh, how boring. But that whole part of that, I I found to be absolutely fascinating. She's constantly going back to that whole idea. And I love that Adrian, one of her biggest insults for Margaret is that she's from Connecticut. (laughs) The other one that you wanted me to watch in relation to this, and I can see aspects of it, but I was trying to figure out exactly what it's related to, was Paul Morrissey's film, often called Andy Warhol's Trash. I 
could not stomach my way through that one. Did you actually make it all the way through that? Yeah, I watched it today. I think I may I'm have. Sorry, I think I may have seen it years ago, and I feel about that film much the way I feel about this film. There's a lot of really annoying things in it. The one thing that was interesting about Trash for me, in terms of watching it, was certain aesthetic choices that are in there are so prominent in the early films of John Waters. It was amazing to watch, like um, certain vocal ticks that one of the characters has and certain way these shots are kind of set up. I'm like, you can totally see that Paul Morrissey and that stuff. I mean, this was 1970, so I mean, Pink Flamingos was 72 and John was doing stuff around 70, 71. You can definitely see that he was influenced by it. At the same time, I didn't necessarily find it all that compelling because – it's almost like a documentary. There's no music. I, I think the whole thing was shot silent and dubbed in post, which really isn't a, that's not really an issue. But basically, to me, the whole film consists of let's look at Joe Delisandro's dick, let's shoot heroin, and then have a conversation with a guy who wants to um, they're, they're trying to scam uh, welfare money. So that actually, at the end, was probably the best scene for me. It just seemed to be so repetitive. It was just Joe D'Alessandro getting naked, trying to have sex with a woman. He can't get it up because he's on heroin, and then he walks around the streets, and they trash pick. And then he goes somewhere else, and he shoots up again, and then tries to have sex with someone else, and it ain't working. And basically, it's just a guy who can't get it up, is addicted to heroin, and I think Hollywood Lawn does a nice job in there. Uh, in her part and there's a lot of references to Detroit and specifically Gross Point all the way through a large section of the film which of course made me just laugh you said that it didn't have any music I, I can think of some music that they could probably put in there oh Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that might help. See, the thing is, is I was thinking about both of these films in terms of its uh, connection to heroin, and like I had brought up train spotting earlier in reference to a, a similar idea of uh, sexuality. And at least those you were dealing with lowlifes, there were some interesting characterizations, and you felt brought in and compelled and, and uh, interested in these people. And my problem was with both the films, I just I it took too long in Liquid Sky to get things going, and in um, Trash, it just seemed that I was just seeing the same thing over and over again, and I was not necessarily compelled by it for whatever reason, outside of, oh, this is an interesting time capsule and it's, you know, it probably belongs in, you know, the Library of Congress, you know, um, historical films registry because of the importance of the Warhol films. That belongs in a museum! But I don't see the value today. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't ring for me. It doesn't do anything for me. I was really reminded a lot um, between the two films, between Trash and Liquid Sky, I was reminded of that New York aesthetic, that Amos Poe kind of uh, Jim Jarmusch early films slowness and the pacing, the, the pretense, that kind of stuff. With some filmmakers, I can actually get into that, but then there are other filmmakers where it's just like, this is way too much and I just can't deal with it. It feels like art for art's sake kind of thing, and 
Like Jarmusch, I can get past that. I can get into his stuff mostly, but like Poe and and some of the guys, and I for me that kind of morphed from from that type of pretension into that whole like cinema of transgression kind of shit, and it's just like so it le- leaves me feeling a little skeezy sometimes. So watching Trash, I was definitely reminded of that, and I like Morrissey's work, especially Dracula and Frankenstein and some of that. But yeah, this. I was just but, so checked out. But Dracula and Frankenstein, which he does like four years later after this, are like light years ahead in oh, terms yeah. of filmmaking quality. I mean, the one thing that I was always like impressed upon when I would read about Warhol was that he wanted to sort of mock and play against the old Hollywood idea of, you know, you have stars and a studio system and all this stuff. But there's no glamour. There's nothing to it. And there's an anti-aesthetic, if anything. I mean, if if you want to talk about someone who was in the, the New York underground at the same time that was using that idea of the old glamour of old Hollywood, the Kuchar brothers were doing it way better. Jack Smith was doing it way better. This, for some reason, it just didn't ring for me. I just, I, I it just wasn't. I wasn't picking up on the vibe. Maybe if I would have saw it in 1970 in some church basement or whatever, wherever they were showing it, I would have been blown away because there would have been nothing like it. But I, maybe I'm jaded looking at it 44 years later. The other thing also it was I was reminded of our interview with Robert Downey Sr., and I think he may have been talking more about you know the eight-hour sleep film that Warhol did, but – when we interviewed with him and he was talking about the underground, he's like, those Warhol films were terrible, you know, and just, you know, humorless and, and everything. And with something like this, I mean, there were moments where it was interesting, but the one thing that just drove me up a wall, like the music at times in Liquid Sky, was about an hour in, there's this one character, and I think she's the one who keeps referencing Gross Point, and she went to Gross Point High School and, and all of this. Her voice is like, just this side of Fran Drescher. It's just this, like, just that, like, Fran Drescher at her most annoying. And it's drones on and on and on. And as a matter of fact, the other characters in the film actually call her out on it and just, you know, tell her to shut up because they can't stand her voice. That I was like, thank you. Thank you for doing that because it was just hard to hear. It was hard to listen to. I know this may not win me any friends, but whenever there is a bad Paul Morrissey film, I always figure that it's more of an Andy Warhol film. When it's a good Paul Morrissey film, I figure it's more of a Paul Morrissey film. See, to me, Warhol was not about plot. I I always felt that Morrissey was the guy who was trying to make features and that Warhol was busy trying to do basically just – wall installation he was trying to create wallpaper i mean like eight hours of someone sleeping eight hours of the empire state building or the um the screen test which are just silent you know just here here's a roll of film and roll it and just you know put it on this person and see how they react for 15 minutes i mean to to me that's more of a gallery aesthetic idea of a of a moving image as a still image more than it is about any sort of narrative flow i appreciate the concept of warhol (laughs) i'm not really a fan though I've tried, and I think it's, you know, what we just said, which is kind of similar to what I was saying to, to Liquid, about Liquid Skies. You know, if I could have experienced it at the time when there was nothing else to compare it to, I'd probably have a much bigger appreciation for it. I'm starting to feel like um, like one of my favorite stand-ups right now. There's this piece by Louis C.K. where he's like, ah, I'm so negative. Sorry I'm being so negative. 
It's, I'm a bummer. I don't know. I, I shouldn't be. I'm a very, uh, you know, lucky guy. I got a lot going for me. I'm, I'm healthy. I'm relatively young. I'm white, which thank God for that shit, boy. That is a huge leg up. Are you kidding me? Oh, God, I love being white. I really do. Seriously, if you're not white, you're missing out because this shit is thoroughly good. It, and but let me be clear, by the way, I'm not saying that white people are better. I'm saying that being white is clearly better. Who could even argue? I've read several times that there's going to be a sequel to this movie. I have no idea where they could take a sequel to Liquid Sky. Yeah, uh, Slava talked about that in his Q&A. I want to say I read online what the story idea was, but I can't remember what it was. Well, I guess we'll have to try to figure that out and link it up over at projection-boot.com. I also saw that he has a a Facebook page for a documentary about Liquid Sky called, uh, I think it's Liquid Sky Revisited. It's, It's his page. I don't know how old the page is or whether it's been kept up or not, but I saw that when I was peeking around. Yeah, I want to say that his website is kept fairly up to date, his uh, Liquid Sky website, because I was trying to get over to it from an old URL, and it just wasn't available anymore. And I think that old URL had been pinged just a couple of years ago. So in web terms, it's cutting edge. So let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for one of the movies we'll be discussing next week. America is a mess. We need someone to clean it up. And his name is Bob. Bob Roberts, millionaire businessman, fencing enthusiast, recording artist, and senatorial candidate. He was a man that not only had a brilliant mind and a wonderful wit, but could also sing. This man. for the future of our country and a great vision for the future of the children of our country. Hey, mister, can I see your gun? He's amazing. He's a poet and a genius. Ladies and gentlemen, why can't you get ahead? She's a beautiful girl. Why can't you have the home of your dreams? Miss Three Mile Island. Wall Street. Wall Street. Alone from a the 60s are over, said Roberts. I couldn't agree more, Donna. I'm sorry, but I wouldn't vote for you. My life depended on it. Are you a communist? Excuse me? <laughs> Paramount Pictures presents with Miramax Films, Bob Roberts, a man with a solution. Choice to be what you want to be, and I want to be rich. That's what politics is really about. Make your judgments if you must. Bob Roberts. Because Bob, spelled backwards, is still Bob. I just wish there was a way I could vote for you a hundred times. Oh, there is, actually. Really? Yes. Just kidding. That's right. Next week will be another great episode of the Projection Booth. We're going to look at three movies that are um, sort of a mix of politics or actually politicians and music for our election special just in time for the November election. And we'll be joined once again by Josh Gravel. But before we go, I want to thank this week's special guest co-host, Skiz Sizik, for coming on the show. And what has been the big news for you since uh, we had you on our Strange Brew episode, sir? 
Uh, I think that at that point I was talking about how the film I co-directed with Joe Trapea, <clears throat> Hit and Stay, was about to come out on DVD. Well, it's out now. Brink Vision or uh, Amazon or Atomic Books is who I'd rather people buy it from. But yeah, Hit and Stay, it's on DVD, it's on VOD, and uh, it's finally out there. Are you busy making movies? I am. I'm uh, editing Ice Pick to the Moon, the documentary I started working on in 1999. And for people that don't know what Ice Pick to the Moon is, what is Ice Pick to the Moon? Ice Pick to the Moon is a documentary about a wild arts collective from the 70s out of Tuscaloosa, Alabama. They went by the name Redellinus. And out of that collective was a strip mine crooner by the name of Reverend Fred Lane, who uh, released a few albums. Uh, he's hard to describe, but he, but those are some of my favorite albums. And uh, they're very obscure I've played them for a lot of my friends who didn't quite hear what I was hearing that made me love them so much. But whenever I meet other Fred Lane fans, they said the exact same thing. Like, they love these albums. They don't know why their friends don't. And so one thing we all had in common is none of us knew anything about the guy. So I just I was determined to find out everything I could about him. And now I'm friends with him and editing a movie about him. Did I tell you that I actually heard the word fundus used in conversation? You did. Yeah, that's a good word. It's very good. And... <laughs> To know, finally know what it means. I don't know why I never looked it up before. <laughs> but yeah, definitely. And then as soon as I heard it, I was like, was she having fun in the fundus? <laughs> that was not appreciated. Mm-hmm. But I appreciate you, Skiz, for coming on the show. And I appreciate everybody who listens to the show. October's been a pretty big month for us over at projection-booth.com. We've released several special episodes this month. And there's at least one Maybe even two more to go. We uh, may not be doing a real Shocktober series, but the amount of work that we've been doing is very shocking. Uh, so go ahead, go over to iTunes if you want. Uh, if you want to show us a little appreciation, leave us a review, leave us some stars. It'll just make you feel better. Deserts of Sudan and the gardens of Japan, from Milan to Yucatan. Every woman's every man. Hit me with your rhythm stick. Hit me, hit me. Shitador, ich liebe dich. Hit me, hit me, hit me. Hit me with your rhythm stick. Hit me slowly. Hit me quick. Hit me. Hit me. Hit me. In the wilds of Borneo and the vineyards of Bordeaux, Eskimo. A Arapaho Move their body To and fro Hit me with your rhythm stick Hit me, hit me Das ist gut, say Fantastic Hit me, hit me, hit me Hit me with your rhythm stick It's nice to be a lunatic Hit me, hit me, hit me
of Tiger Bay On the road to Mandalay From Bombay to Santa Fe Over the hills and far away Hit me with your rhythm stick Hit me, hit me Says he won't, he says next Hit me, hit me, hit me Hit me with your rhythm stick Two fat persons, click, click, click Hit me, hit me, hit me Hit me, hit me, hit me Hit me Hit me Hit me If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.